The fire department guys were just coming in. I was getting lifted out and they were just coming in over the fence. And they looked at me and I'm sure I just looked a big mess. And they said, oh good, they're survivors. And I said, nope, nobody survived. G'day, my name is Greg Thornton and I live in Cheringong, New South Wales, Australia. And I've been a high school teacher for 38 years. I love the testimonies shared on Compelled because they challenge me in my walk as a Christian in a world where so many young people struggle with identity, purpose and hope. Enjoy today's episode. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, where we use gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Our last episode was with Steve and Susan Vinton, who for the last 30 years have fulfilled a unique calling, serving as the hands and feet of Christ to impoverished communities in Africa, where they realized that the gospel of Jesus changes every facet of life. Again, that's our previous episode with Steve and Susan Vinton. Now, today is special for two reasons. First off, it's our second to last episode of the season, and we've got a great story lined up that I cannot wait to share with you. But the other reason is if you wanna hear our season finale episode, you don't have to wait two weeks from now. In fact, you can actually hear it today, two weeks early, but you're not gonna find it here on the regular Compelled podcast feed. Nope, it's at a totally different place, which I'll explain to you after today's episode. So just stick around to the credits and at the end, I'll give you all the details. Today, our guest is Melody Green, who was raised in the Jewish tradition, but during the 70s married a fiery young singer named Keith Green, who was exploring the teachings of Jesus, a Jewish rabbi who appeared to have found the pathway to God. Alongside her husband, Melody embarked on a personal quest to live a life of sold-out devotion to this Messiah. But when God blessed their efforts and grew their ministry with meteoric speed, the unthinkable occurred, where Melody would have to trust the God that she had found. So gather around, lean in, and join us for another compelling story from the kingdom of God. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. A few months ago, Melody and I sat down at a church near her home in Los Angeles. Her family roots trace back to Europe near Kherson, which is now part of Ukraine. But almost 100 years ago, her grandparents made the courageous decision to leave their homeland and immigrate to the United States. Her family was Jewish and just narrowly missed the horrors of World War II and communist oppression. Instead, Melody was born in Venice, California, a suburb of Los Angeles near the famous Venice Beach Boardwalk. She spent her early years there in a little alley just off the ocean and grew up with the Jewish traditions of her family. But her journey of faith was just beginning. Everybody that was in my realm was Jewish. And so 
That was very much my identity. I knew there was a God because my mom believed in God, and I went to synagogue with her a couple times a year on the big holidays, and it was holy. There was something holy about it, but I didn't understand any of it. So I just kept looking for God and ended up, you know, getting into all kinds of Eastern mysticism and just trying out all kinds of things that worked for a year or so. I even went to Japan and chanted to a huge stone at the foot of Mount Fuji. So I was searching everywhere, but I wasn't looking into Jesus ever because as a Jewish person, I got called a lot of names. I was told I was a dirty Jew. You know, because you're off on the Jewish holidays, so people know. And I killed Jesus, and I'm thinking, I don't even know Jesus. What are you talking about? But there was a lot of that coming at me. And so as I was looking for truth and looking for God, why would I look into Jesus? Because my people killed him, apparently, and they don't like me. And I knew enough about Hitler to know that he was picture was in every Catholic school throughout Germany at the time during the Holocaust and stuff. So I figured he's a Christian too. And it was just somewhere I wasn't going to go, ever. While Melody's personal search for truth continued, life carried on. Shortly after college, she found herself drawn to the world of fashion design in downtown LA. But layoffs pushed her out, and she ended up taking a job at a video production studio, which is where she met a certain young man named Keith Green. He was supposed to be a pop star and got signed by Decca when he was 11, 12. And they put out the promo and he was on all these TV shows and he was the next big hot kid. And they figured out, hey, teens and preteens, they actually have money to buy stuff with. There's a whole market there. And they were promoting Keith like really big. And then his stuff didn't go well. And they dropped him and sell it like, 15, Keith was like a failure, and it has been. So that's when he started searching, well, if I'm not going to be a pop star, what's the meaning of my life? And so he started running away from home and looking into all these other things, trying to find meaning for his life and truth. And Keith walked in one day with his dad and his dog and his grandfather and whatever, because videotape and music are going to be the next big thing. And they had heard that. And so I was the one that gave him a tour. I did shows. I ran cameras. There were only six of us. But I was the receptionist and answered the phone also. And so I gave him a tour, and I was showing him. We had all the best high-end stuff that there was available at that time. It was a huge industrial building. Anyway, I gave Keith and his family and his dog this tour. Even his dog. Oh, yeah. He always had his dog with him. So I was trying to tell him about, hey, this is this, and this is this camera, and here's all the switchers and all that. And Keith kept zoning in on me, asking me questions. Now, he was 19, but he looked older, but, you know, he was sort of a kid to me. But he really liked me, and he started calling the office and dropping by with bagels and, you know asking me to go to lunch and all this. And I finally was, all right, I'll go on a picnic with you. But he, Keith, Keith was wearing this little cross, a really tiny cross uh, that was old. 
And he said, I, I won $12 in a poker game. I went to this pawn shop and got this cross. It's The guy said it's from an Ecuadorian monk. And it was sort of rubbed, you know, and he said he must have been praying a lot over it. And he was wearing it. And I, I kind of looked at it. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm Jewish. And he goes, well, I am too. And he goes, so is Jesus. And I'd never heard that before. But kind of long story short, I was with Keith. And he was into Jesus, and he was reading the red letters of the Bible. At that point, he had narrowed everything down. He'd been through all the, some of the same Eastern mysticism things I'd been through. He hadn't left the country like I did, but there was a lot of stuff around in LA that you could, you know, hook up with for a while and be like, yeah, this, mm, whatever. And he moved in with me. I had a little studio apartment, you know, with a fold-out bed, no bedroom. And he moved in with me and started moving out all these books of mine, the spiritual books like, you know, astrology and all this other stuff I was into. And I'm like, what are you doing? You know, he goes, oh, I've looked into all this stuff. He says, this isn't right. Before I met Keith, I had a Bible I'd stolen from a Palm Springs hotel room. Those Gideon Bibles they had in the drawer. I just figured they wanted you to take them, right? So I took one because I thought I'd never read the Bible. I'll take a Bible. And I started at the beginning, Genesis, okay. I mean, you get to Leviticus and you're like, what? I was just like, can't understand this. And But I kept it, I had it, it was turquoise. And um, so he says, you can keep this one. So I was like, I was mad at him for throwing my stuff away, but he had stuff he wanted to put on my little shelf and he just didn't want, I think something that would be distracting to him because he'd kind of X'd out all these other religions, and Keith could analyze things very quickly. So he says, I've looked into everything. Everybody thinks Jesus is a good guy. Like, ah, he's a good guy, or he's a prophet, or even the Jews are like, well, he was a rabbi, kind of, you know, misled, whatever. But he said, everybody points to Jesus. I mean, everybody kind of says, he's basically a good guy. And so at that point, he said, I decided to just go to the source, and I'm only reading the red letters because those are the things Jesus said. And I liked Keith and I'd never read the red letters. So I never got that far in the Bible. And so we were living together and started reading the red letters and read parts that were like, you know, you probably should not have sex before you get married, whatever the scripture was. So Keith proposed. He said, I don't know if this is right. Maybe we should get married. And I'm like, well, I don't want to get married. I mean, I, all I've seen is bad relationships and divorces. And nobody's happy. You know, it was the 70s. It was the mid-70s. So I didn't want to get engaged. I didn't want to get married. And he said, well, let's get engaged to get engaged. And then, if, then on my 20th birthday, which was about a month or so away, if we're still together, then let's get literally engaged, like for sure, and get married on Christmas Day in the name of Jesus. So I was like, okay, you know, fine. And before we got married, we went to get our wedding rings, which were just little hammered sort of platinum bands that were hammered. And he wanted to get a cross engraved in them, a little tiny cross. And we had a huge blowout fight because I didn't want a cross on my wedding ring. I'm Jewish. I'm not 
put in a cross on my ring. He didn't have like a huge Jewish identity like I did. So we had a huge fight, of course, Keith won, and we had this tiny little cross etched in our rings. Melody and Keith eloped at a little church on Christmas Day, 1973. Their families were a little bewildered by the news, but there was no use in talking them out of it. Over the next year, the Greens started visiting churches so that they could learn more about Jesus, but their appearance raised a few eyebrows. The local churches were still relatively formal in nature, but this was the 70s, and the Greens looked like it. Keith sported a large beard and bushy ponytail, while Melody exuded a chic bohemian style complete with styled hair and trendy attire. And frankly, they kind of stuck out like a sore thumb at all the churches that they visited. Furthermore, while Keith and Melody were comfortable with Jesus as an enlightened teacher, if they heard a church mention anything about Jesus being divine or God's son, then Keith would just stand up in the middle of the service and walk right out, never to return. And Melody would tag along. After 15 months of searching, they were starting to grow weary when their friend Ken challenged them to give his home Bible study a chance. When I met Keith, he was saying, Jesus is, he's like a master. He's like a guru. I think he's the one that's going to have the truth, but no, not God, you know, but just somebody that we could follow. And I was following Keith and liked him enough to just be, you know, yeah, I'll do this. But as we were reading the Bible, it was penetrating. So we're just sitting around the outer circle and listening and Something was in the room. I really felt something deep inside. And I looked at Keith, you know, and I could tell he did too. And I remember thinking, I don't know what they have, but this is what I've been looking for. I mean, I knew I was at a Christian Bible study, but I didn't know really what that even meant. And then, you know, Ken talked a little while and gave a message, and then he gave an altar call. We're all sitting down. It was a raise your, close your eyes, raise your hand kind of thing. And everything in me, I wanted to raise my hand. But it was like there was an elephant sitting on my hand. Because in my heart, I, I was like, I am betraying the blood of every Jew that's died in the Holocaust and the Crusades and the, you know, getting kicked out of Spain, the expulsions, everything. You know, I knew my history and it's like, I, I can't follow Jesus, but I wanted what they had. So can wait. And I, I kind of looked corner of my eye. I could see Keith has his hand up. And so Ken waits a minute, says, well, okay. On the way home, Keith is all excited. Well, we found it, you know, I'm so excited. And I'm like, mm, yeah, I didn't raise my hand. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I couldn't get it up, you know, because I just felt like I'd be such a betrayer. And we're going to go back the next week. And I was so excited because I'm like, I'm going to raise my hand this time. You know, I just, I'm going to get my hand up. And figured out a little more about Jesus at that point. Just a little. I mean, knowing that, okay, he was Jewish. Okay, he went to the Jews first. You know, just a little. And we showed up, and I'm like, okay, hurry up through the worship. Hurry up through the message. Get to the raising your hand part. And we got there, and I couldn't raise my hand again. So Ken is very silent. And then he goes, he's waiting. Our eyes are closed. And he goes, 
you know, I think it's, there's someone else in this room that needs to raise their hand. And I'm like, how did he know? It's me, I know, how did he know? And so, I mean, I got my hand up and then it was like, hey man, you know. We were baptized maybe a couple of months later in the Pacific together with a whole bunch of people. Melody and Keith wasted no time in sharing their brand new faith. While they dug deeper into the Bible, they immediately began pouring themselves into the lives of those around them. And while they weren't perfect and their journey wasn't without its challenges, they learned to become receptive to the guiding influence of the Holy Spirit. Because I think we've been reading the Bible, we didn't know, I mean, we still didn't know that much. I mean, we'd only been Christians for like no time. It rang true, like you go to the hedges and byways and you help the poor and you do this and you do that. And all that really rang true to us, like, yes, this is what you're supposed to do. So right away, that's what we started doing. We're going to the hedges and the byways and we're going to the beach and playing the guitar. Keep and play the guitar. We'll get a crowd around us. And then we'll start talking about Jesus. And sure enough, you know, I mean, everything just happened. It was like, Mel, there's a girl back there crying. Go talk to her. I'm like, you, you go talk to her. No, you go. So I go, and her husband's beating her. She's pregnant. She's at a Salvation Army home. She's going to have an abortion on Tuesday. It's probably Saturday or Friday. And we never thought about that. So I went and told Keith that, that story. So he goes, oh, I'll come and talk to her. So we went together, and he goes, why don't you come home with us? He didn't even ask me, you know. It was, well, why don't you come home with us? And by that time, we owned a little house in the valley. And um, and so... What, what crossed your mind when he said that? I was surprised, and then it seemed like the right thing, you know. And he said, we'll come pick you up tonight you know, give us the address. So we went to the home she was in and they had a piano there. So Keith gave a little concert for everybody, all the girls, and we took her home with us and she canceled her abortion. She stayed with us for about two weeks. And then one day she was gone. We woke up and she was gone and we didn't know what happened to her, but we knew where we had met her, which was down at Muscle Beach in Santa Monica. So We'd always ask people, her name was Bobette, and so, you know, if, if you ever see a girl that's pregnant or this is what she looks like, and a couple of years later, somebody said they saw a girl and they talked to her and her name was Bobette, and she had a small child with her, a baby or a small child. So we knew that she didn't have the abortion, that she had her baby, and we didn't know what was going on with her. But that was the first girl who came to live with us. And then it was just, I mean, we purpose, we were intentional and purposeful. It wasn't just, oh, if we meet somebody, it was like, oh, we're at the restaurant. There's a waitress. She looks bummed out. We'll talk to her. Oh, let's pick up that hitchhiker. Tell him about Jesus. We didn't invite everybody, but if somebody was having a problem or they were hitchhiking and didn't have a place to stay or we met them somewhere, we'd always say, well, come stay with us. And so... Our house got full really fast. You know, it was like 11, 1,200 square feet. It wasn't big. 
you know, three bedrooms, one bathroom at the end of the hallway, no bathroom in a bedroom. And so we had about 13 people with us, one guy in the garage, and a little uh, 12-year-old was sleeping in our bedroom. His mom across the street had gotten come to the Lord and was coming. We started Bible studies, of course, and she was like, my son's really having problems. Can you guys take him for a little bit? So we didn't, we weren't going to put a 12-year-old out, whatever. So he put him on a sleeping bag in our room. He, he wasn't there that long, um, but we kept him for a little bit. And then, you know, we were building bunk beds and three high and then oh surprise the house next door came up for sale it's like oh a miracle you know i'm sure they were sick of all these people you know in our yard but we bought that house you know and made that into a dorm and then we ended up renting five other houses within like a couple block area of where we lived in woodland hills and we had up to like 75 people at a time in the different houses. Yeah, we were paying for all of it. We, I mean, $2,000 in 1975, 76, I don't know what it comes to today, but God just provided. And we did the food bank and the cans that didn't have labels on them, but we could also buy food and, you know, we made, and so it was like, okay, let's get efficient. This house is the house we'll all eat in. This is, this one's for the girls. This one's for the guys. That one's for, you know. So we started getting a little organized like that. There were bikers. There were like a lot of, like people that would be like colorful hippies. There were some pregnant girls. Um, there were some women who needed to be in a shelter in a way, you know, from their husband. There were kids that hitchhiked from the East Coast to the West Coast in some cult and got left selling flowers in Beverly Hills. And one of our people would find them and talk to them and talk to them about Jesus and say, hey, if you don't want to go back, you can come with us. They came. There were a few girls that were prostitutes. They came, one from Hollywood and one from another state. And um, and it wasn't like, you know, by them, people, we were all just, people need to know the Lord. And so everybody was just talking to people wherever they went. And the atmosphere at that time was everybody was searching and everybody wanted to find some truth. And people didn't hate Jesus. All we really had was our testimony because our lives had totally changed. Of course, you might be asking yourself, how in the world do they pay for all of this? And part of the answer was through Melody and Keith's jobs as staff songwriters for CBS Records. But another way was Keith's work as an actual performer. Before his conversion to Christianity, Keith would play at local clubs and bars, and his songs delved deep into the theme of searching, reflecting the spiritual aspirations of his soul. But once he found Christ, Keith's songs underwent a transformation. He was an evangelist at heart and felt called to use his music to reach those who were still searching for answers. So he began playing these new songs at nightclubs and secular venues across Los Angeles. His incredible range of skill on the piano was matched by the authenticity of his lyrics, and he began to attract a growing and attentive audience. But after he released his first album, everything changed, which we'll dive into right after the break. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. 
But imagine if you could enjoy compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. Have you ever wondered why traditional math curriculums seem like they have a one-size-fits-all approach? Well, that's because they do. The curriculum writers are making assumptions about how quickly your child is progressing, even if your child is actually struggling with a concept, which, if left unchecked, can become a major hurdle to learning and hurt their confidence. That's one of the reasons why CTC Math exists. It's an adaptive online approach that automatically changes depending on your child's unique learning needs. By adapting to your student's pace, learning becomes not only more effective, but also more enjoyable. Can you imagine? No more tears about fractions. The interactive questions change in difficulty based on how your child is progressing, ensuring that they're challenged at the level that's right for them. Not too hard, not too easy. It's just like having a math tutor who knows exactly what they need when they need it. And as a parent, you'll love the detailed reports. You'll get to see their progress in real time and celebrate their victories and understand their challenges. Ready to give your child's math education a major boost? Just visit ctcmath.com and sign up for a free trial and experience firsthand how personalized learning can transform your child's approach to math. Again, that's ctcmath.com. Welcome back to Compelled. Melody's husband, Keith, was a talented musician. And after becoming a Christian, he had begun writing and performing new songs reflecting the peace and joy he'd found in his heart after years of searching for answers. And when they released Keith's first album in 1977, a whirlwind erupted. His record immediately topped the charts and became the top-selling debut album in Christian recording. And churches all over the country invited him to come and play concerts. 
Keith was unwavering in his commitment to sing the message that God had placed on his heart. And Melody was happy to write songs alongside her husband that celebrated what they had found in the Lord. And in many ways, Melody was the unsung hero behind the scenes. Depending on the day, she might have been managing the audio from the sound booth at a concert, or selling records at the merchandise table, or writing a new song that Keith was going to sing. Everywhere they went, people wanted to know when Keith's next album would come out. And since this was well before the rise of the internet or email, the only way to stay in touch was to send physical mail. So before they knew it, the Greens were printing a newsletter and then a magazine from their garage and mailing it to tens of thousands of fans across the country. They chose a name for their ministry, calling it Last Days Ministries, and moved away from the seven crowded houses in California to a small ranch in Texas with big sloping hills and a picturesque water wheel, where they could house all of their ministry operations. Many of the 75 people from their seven-house community who had become Christians made the move with them and worked for the ministry full-time. And somewhere in the middle of all this torrent of activity, Melody and Keith also gave birth to their first child and released their second album, which was also tremendously successful. But with this deluge of acclaim and fame that could have translated into a significant financial windfall, Keith felt a very different conviction. All the Christian labels wanted Keith because he was a big deal then. After his second album, you know, he was on the map. And so he was being courted by everybody. And one of the people that we worked with said, such and such a label just offered me 25 grand if I could give them a personal introduction and if you sign with them. And another one was like, hey, we'll give you this budget, let's say $200,000. And if you make that album for 75,000, then you got 125 to put in your pocket. And that didn't seem right. You know, it wasn't legit. Not in, I mean, maybe that's a deal people make. But for Keith, that was just like, that's kind of weird. And right after that, he was so convicted. And I didn't know the whole of it. He hadn't shared that much with me to my recollection. But he said, God's been telling me to give my albums away, to make them be free. You're charging for ministry. You shouldn't be charging for ministry. You know, it's like, well, I, you know, here's what God told me, and I don't want to go with another label. Mel and I are just going to mortgage our house to pay for this album. And there's just people are getting saved. You know, they're giving their heart to the Lord. They're worshiping. And I just want anybody to be able to get my album that there's people that can't afford to buy albums. They should be free to people. But the first test of giving them away was the next tour. And it was a nightmare because Keith was just like, you know, I'm not charging for my albums. They're in the back of the record table. Well, Mel left the soundboard and went back to the record table. Me, I mean, I thought I was going to get crushed to death because people just ran out a horde of people, you know, elbowing each other and jamming and pushing against the table and scooping up armloads of these vinyl records. And the table was getting pushed against the wall. I was pinned against the wall. And it was like I was in shock, you know. So Keith worked on modifying language. And it was, you know, came down to take one per household. Then it was whatever you can afford. But we're doing a mail order 
Well, I know we sent 200,000. I know about 61,000 of those were for free, totally for free. And the rest, the remainder, whatever, the math genius, 140,000-ish, were for whatever somebody could afford. So it could have been a dollar. You know, it could have been $5. It could have been whatever. And, and then some people started saying, well, whatever I can afford is $25. You know, some people sent more, which helped cover the free ones. And, but they went all over. They went into prisons. They went into other nations. I mean, they went all over. And I still meet people that were like, I got a free album. We'd get like a box of vegetables. This is all I have. I'm missing a mom. You know, I just, whatever. And, and you know, people would write letters. And there was, Keith read one letter. I'm not sure which one it was, but it was a single mom who needed her free album, and she was struggling to even feed her kids. I mean, she wrote out some of her story, and Keith goes, she needs some help. So he wrote a check to her and taped it to the album before we sent it, you know? I mean, Keith was a giver. He was really a generous giver. And God was blessing us. You know, he, he was just really generous. And it wasn't like the Greens were passing out money recklessly or couldn't keep track of their funds. In fact, Keith was quite adept at numbers and budgets. But Keith and Melody had really taken to heart that our life on earth has but one purpose, to glorify God, and that storing up earthly treasures instead of heavenly ones was foolish. And pretty soon, Keith was convicted about another area of their ministry he felt they should offer for free. But there was also some pushback. When Keith decided he was going to not charge for his albums, then he decided not to charge for his concerts. A little bit because of the way Keith is wired, which was always pretty black and white, kind of absolute. And he started getting some flack from other artists. I mean, we knew other artists. We were friends with other artists. Yeah, it's a bad look. You're making us look bad. And some, a few people, not everybody, but even thought you're doing that on purpose, which... Keith was just trying to do what he felt God was telling him to do, do it in a way that settled in his conscience before God. And so he would say, if it's ministry, you cannot charge. That was what he would say. You know, like church, you don't pay to go to church. And Keith was ordained, and he considered himself a minister of the gospel. His tools was playing the piano, but he also preached a lot in between songs. There were some nights when he hardly sang a song at all. You know, he would do some worship and preach. And I mean, there's a thing of him on tape, like, I know how to entertain. I, I've done that before. I'm not an entertainer. First of all, I am a Christian. Second of all, I am called to be a preacher. And third of all, and least important to me is I'm a musician. That's really the way he felt. Like, I'm a Christian and I'm a preacher. And Keith really did feel like, shouldn't it be like making a ton of money off the gospel? It's fair to make a living and support your family and do all that, but you don't need to become a multimillionaire because you're singing about Jesus or preaching about Jesus unless you're really just turning that over, you know, by 1982, the tornado of activity in their ministry 
hadn't slowed down, and if anything, had only increased. Their fourth and fifth albums had been huge hits as well, and they were constantly giving packed-out concerts all across the country. Plus, Melody had given birth to two more kids, bringing their total up to three children. After sprinting for what seemed nonstop ever since they became Christians seven years ago, the Greens finally decided it was time to take their first ever vacation. But instead of taking a well-earned rest in the Bahamas or a quiet oceanside resort, they chose to rest in the only way that made sense to them, by visiting other missionaries on the mission field, which is how they ended up in Europe touring a new mission project one of their friends was launching called Mercy Ships. It was a former ocean liner that was being converted into a floating hospital, capable of sailing to any impoverished nation or war-torn region and providing instant medical care and the life-changing message of Christ. Don Stevens, who started the ship ministry, he flew into Switzerland and met us there. We didn't know he was coming. He said, hey, you guys want to come to Greece with me tomorrow and see the ship? And so we went there with him. We were just like, whoa. And uh, people were living in two, three hundred square feet with uh, no air conditioning and kids. And they were eating this old fish. And I mean, it was just deplorable. You know, they really were struggling and they were trying to renovate the ship and get it over to America. And they said, this guy is going to fill the tank when we come over. And it was either two or three hundred thousand dollars. I can't remember which. To fill the tank with gas. To- yeah, whatever ship you use to sail across the ocean. And so that guy, when we got back, who was said he was going to fill their tanks, came to visit us in Texas. And we gave him a tour of the ministry, just like we do everybody, and load up a shopping cart full of books and music and blah, blah, blah. He's just like, I love your ministry. You know, I'm going to send you 200 grand and, you know, I'm there thinking, oh, man, that's great. You know, we can build another dorm. We can do this. You know, do that, you know, because nobody ever gave us a big gift. And he left, and Keith looked at me. and I was sort of like, wow. And Keith was like, that guy's not giving us any money. He's a criminal. He's sleazy. I don't even want his money, but don't worry. He's not even going to give it, which he didn't. And he also didn't fill the ship with gas tank to come over to America. So our ministry had money enough to give them the two or three hundred thousand dollars that it cost to fill their tank. And so we did that. Um, so you guys gassed up the very first mercy ship mm-hmm. to come from Greece outside of Athens to San Pedro. But it was just like they need to get here, you know. With the seed money from the Greens to embark on its maiden voyage across the sea, the very first Mercy ship would go on for the next several decades to provide medical care and the gospel to over a million people across 23 nations. Back in the States, the Greens were physically and spiritually refreshed by their time away and were ready to throw themselves headlong again into the ministry opportunities that God continued to provide. But unknown to them, a pivotal event awaited that would forever change their lives. More on that after the break. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. 
And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcasts' top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. Welcome back to Compelled. By 1982, Last Days Ministries was a force to be reckoned with. Their operation included 75 staff and a mailing list of half a million. And true to Keith's unwavering convictions, they never sold ads or made a profit off the ministry. Their magazine, concerts, and music albums were all freely given away, regardless if someone made a donation or not. Everything was shipped from their headquarters at the small ranch in Texas, and they even had a couple of small propeller planes and an airstrip to help with the logistics. The Greens had also become early advocates for the unborn and openly challenged Christians to oppose abortion with Melody's breakthrough article begging the question, are children things we throw away? Keith's concerts that spring brought in huge crowds, sometimes up to 10,000 people. But as Keith played for audiences who were already Christians, he felt convicted to shift towards those who had never come to one of their concerts, the lost and the unreached. So Keith began writing new missions-oriented articles for The Last Days magazine, and he and Melody were busy penning new songs calling on Christians to mobilize for the sake of the gospel. And they had just begun talks with a national radio syndicate to begin a weekly broadcast. God's favor was all over the ministry and their family, and in fact, Melody was now pregnant with their fourth child. So when a couple of church planning friends and their children came to visit in July of that year, the horizon seemed to hold limitless potential. John and Dee, Dee got there around dinner time when we were breaking our fast. And I ate, went home with my kids. And Keith came running down there. It was summer, so it was going to be light until, you know, eight maybe, something like that. And he, he came down and said, and was 
to the house and he was like, come on, you know, we're gonna go with John and Dee Dee and the kids, we're gonna take them up in the airplane. And, and I was washing the dishes and going, yeah, I don't know, I don't think I wanna go. And he was like begging, please, Mel, please, because he always wanted me to come with him. I just knew I didn't want to go. And Keith was really surprised. And, but he kept looking at his watch because it's going to get dark. You know, it's after dinner. And finally, it's like, all right, I got to go. You know, it's going to get dark and they're leaving in the morning and can't see everything. So he went out the door and I was, hmm. A parent's worst fear, not when your kids are loud and crying and, you know, playing. I mean, I had a two and a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And it was always, get off the baby, you know, don't jump on the baby. Wait, quit, you know. And, you know, it was always, like, loud in the house. And all of a sudden, it was quiet. And I was like, why is it quiet? Where are the kids? This is weird. So I ran out the front door, and Josiah was already in the car with him, and Bethany was standing there crying, Daddy, take me too. And it's all happening so fast. You know, it's happening so fast that I'm thinking, what, wait? Well, no, not Bethany too, because I had, I was afraid. And then I thought, Mel, why are you feeling afraid? This is silly, you know? But then all of a sudden I yell out to Keith, and I say, hey, if you don't come back, what do you want me to name the baby? If it's a boy, do you want me to name the baby after you? I mean, this is a weird conversation. So I asked him this question. We're like shouting across this thing. And he's like, no, nah, don't name him after me, but raise Rebecca as a woman of God. That's the one-year-old. And I was just like, huh? yeah, okay. But I needed to know that. How weird is that? I mean, why would you ask that? Or why wouldn't you say, why am I asking this question? You know, I just said, okay, Mel, you're being silly. Go into the office, finish the article you're working. You'll have about 20 minutes to work on it. Keith and the kids are gone. And, you know. And then I get a call that the plane went down. And I didn't know what that meant. For a brief moment, Melody thought that perhaps the plane had lifted off the tarmac and then landed back down at the end of the runway and skidded off into the dirt. But a minute later, she was at the airstrip and there was no plane visible. Instead, there was a thin, small trail of smoke coming up from behind the trees on the neighboring property at the end of the runway. Word was quickly spreading and all the last day's ministry staff were rushing into the woods to the source of the smoke. And by the time Melody reached the site, there was a small crowd standing very, very still. Everyone was silent. The ground was blackened and charred, and in the middle was the twisted and scorched remains of their plane, which had been full of gas and had exploded on impact. Tragically, Keith, their three-year-old son Josiah, and two-year-old daughter Bethany had all died instantly in the crash, alongside their pilot and visiting friends and their family. A future aviation investigation would conclude that the plane was overloaded with too many passengers and had failed to generate enough lift to adequately take off before nosediving into the ground. Melody was shocked and only felt numb inside. By the time I was walking out of the woods where they crashed, 
and they were uncleared woods, which is all bushes and stuff, scraping your legs and stuff. And I had to get lifted over this barbed wire fence. It was somebody else's property. And we had a volunteer fire department in the area. And the fire department guys were just coming in. I was getting lifted out and they were just coming in over the fence. And they looked at me and I'm sure I just looked a big mess. And they said, oh good, they're survivors. And I said, nope, nobody survived. I got back in our station wagon because we had to drive across a field and go through somebody else's, they had to let us in a gate and all that. And as we started driving, there were the biggest raindrops I'd ever seen in my life. In East Texas, it's like, you know, rain's on your neighbor and not on you. Or you're on a highway and you drive through a storm and then it's clear and then you're driving back through it and then it's clear. It's really odd. It's not like California. So it wasn't raining when I was at the crash, but as soon as I got in the car, they were like silver dollar size at least. These splotch, splotch, splotch on the windshield. And I felt God's presence and I felt like that's the Lord's tears. I felt like God was crying. And as we got through the field and pulled out onto the, the road, which is a two lane little country road, it wasn't raining. And so it was just a day, a moment I'll never forget. You know, I'll always miss them. You can't not miss your family or think about, well, what might have been? Had Keith been alive and we had four kids and, but then things would have been different for my kids and the husbands that they found and the families that they've had, you know, we wouldn't have probably been in California. We wouldn't have probably, you know, you don't, you don't know. It's just like God's in control and that's all I could count on. You know, all I could say is the hair on her head is numbered and our days are counted and it was an accident and I was really mad for a very long time about it. You know, I didn't ever try to be, oh, they're in a better place. I'm like, well, yeah, but they're not with me and my life is ruined, so I'm not happy. And I won't be happy for a long time, you know? That's just the way it is, and it's the truth. And, um, I mean, it's different for everybody. No situations are the same, and losses aren't the same, circumstances aren't the same. But for me, I would say I took about three years to stop crying every day. Or maybe by three years, it was every other day or a couple times a week or, you know, it was just what it was, you know? It wasn't like, oh, now I'm not happy about it, and I wish it didn't happen, and I know I'll see them again. And I know when I see them again, when I see the Lord, I won't have questions. Any question I want to ask them at that point, you know, I don't think it will matter. As the years passed, a lot happened. In the immediate aftermath, the fall concerts that had already been booked before Keith died still went on as memorial concerts, but this time with a video recording of Keith's last concert, which they didn't even realize they had until after he died. 
Keith's final message had a strong emphasis on missions and challenged their audience to mobilize to the nations through short-term missions. Before Keith had died, he had been praying that 100,000 people would respond to their missions challenge. But after Keith's death, the number who actually deployed as a result of their challenge was double that, with 200,000 Christians joining at least one short-term trip. The next March, Keith and Melody's fourth child was born, a daughter who Melody named Rachel. Over the next few years, three more albums of Keith's unreleased songs were mastered and published. And with Melody at the helm, Last Days Ministries became one of the most vocal champions for the unborn. And they spearheaded a two-year national campaign raising awareness among Christians about abortion, which at the time, many churches hadn't even paid attention to. And of course, Melody continued to be a single mother to two young girls. It wasn't easy, but she was also grateful for the extra help and support that they had from their local community, which today she'll point out is one of the key ingredients to dealing with grief. I think sometimes Christians who have not had a serious loss in their life yet don't understand how traumatic it can be and how long it takes, depending on what it is, to get through it, and that people need very long-term support. I mean, it's not like, oh, go to counseling, we have counselors, and they'll talk to you about it. It's like, no, I mean, that's nice, and if you do, that's good. That's, that's part of it. But the big thing is, don't forget about them. Have the church be part of their lives. Find out if what they need. Find out, hey, you know, we have a mechanic at church. If your car breaks down, call the office. If your plumbing breaks, call us. We don't have a plumber, but we know some good ones. You know, let us know. Stay in people's lives. It's not, it's not a three or four or six month experience. It's a long time. And walk with them through it. Because that's what people did with me, but not in the church so much as in the ministries and communities around me. And I needed every bit of that to move forward. I think we can't have the attitude, if you're a Christian and if you pray hard enough and if you believe hard enough, your person will be healed of cancer. Your person will, you know, this will reverse. People do get healed, but more people don't. And I've watched churches fast and pray for 40 days and and then another 40 days and and when that person dies it's like god let us down i always pray until somebody's not breathing but i also know that god might take them home even if i have a feeling he's going to i'll still ask god to heal him god does answer prayer but sometimes we think if we pray hard enough and enough, we can almost manipulate God and make him do what we're asking him to do because we have fasted and we have prayed and we have believed with 100% of our heart that you are going to do this. And so you must do this. You will do this. Maybe it's not must, but you will do this because we are being so faithful to do what's required of us for you to answer this prayer. And if that prayer doesn't get answered, some people can cast their faith aside. Some people can just be 
I gave it everything and this happened or that happened or they died or they went blind or they died in, you know, and it's like they cast their faith aside because they gave everything, believing if they gave everything that God would do what they're asking. And God doesn't. God does his will. And I do believe God's in control. And indeed, God is in control. We may not have every answer to the brokenness and heartache that we experience on earth, and we may never fully understand God's chosen times of divine intervention on this side of heaven, but we can find peace in knowing that our God is the God who knows, the God who comforts, and the God who remains in control. Melody clung to the words of Psalm 37, 3, which say, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Melody was ever devoted to God's calling on her life. And though she was still working through her grief, she believed in what God was doing through last day's ministries and even now through her deceased husband. And perhaps one of the most poignant illustrations of that was the mercy ship we told you about earlier. This was the same ship that the Greens ministry had paid to fill up with the first tank of gas all those months ago to begin its maiden voyage across the Atlantic Ocean. And it just so happened that in God's timing, the ship had already left its port in Greece and was actually en route to California when Keith passed away. It was docking, I think, about 10 days after the plane crash. Mm. And Keith was going to fly out and meet the ship and meet the people and be on the dock for the ceremony. I was not planning to go with Keith on that trip. I knew I was pregnant. I was early, but in my pregnancy, but I mean, this is number four. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm not going, you know. But then they asked me if I wanted to come instead, and I did. So I went. And as the ship was turning where you could see it, you know, it was probably out where you couldn't see it from the dock. And as it came in, it was like a, a channel that it came in on. They put Keith on the loudspeaker singing, holy, holy, holy. It was pretty awesome. And all the major YWAM leaders were there that we knew. And that had become close to us. And I really did get to reap the benefits of all those relationships that had begun with Keith. I just thank anyone who's listening for taking the time to listen. And I just, you know, hope that your journey with God stays strong in a time when it's harder to stay strong, but most important to stay strong. Amen. The lives of Keith and their two children were sadly cut short 40 years ago. But even in tragedy, we know that there is redemption for grief and purpose remaining on this earth for those who seek Christ. Melody pursued Christ above all else with determination and continues to do so even today. Shortly after Keith's death, she came across John 12, 24, about a single grain of wheat, which in death brings much fruit. The point is about laying down our old lives for the sake of Christ and pursuing him wholeheartedly so that he may bring about much fruit for the kingdom, which is exactly what Keith had strived to do. If you'd like to learn more about Melody and Keith, then you can read Melody's book, No Compromise, The Life Story of Keith Green. You can also visit their ministry website at lastdaysministries.org. And of course, you should totally listen to Keith's music on Spotify, YouTube Music, or wherever else you listen to music. Just search for Keith Green. 
And of course, we'll include links to Melody's book, website, Keith's music, and more on our website at compelledpodcast.com. Just search for this episode. And if you know someone who should hear Melody's story, then take a quick minute and send it to them. Now, I told you at the beginning of this episode that if you want to hear our season finale episode, you don't have to wait two weeks from now because thanks to our friends at Living Waters, you can listen to our season finale episode today, right now, this very minute. All you have to do is search for the Living Waters podcast and listen to it there. Our guest is Ray Comfort, who as a young man in New Zealand had everything he could want, a thriving business, a beautiful wife, and a successful career in front of him. But when he realized that the brevity of life and the finality of death was permanent, he began to despair. But before you jump over there, add to your calendar our live end of year video celebration on Monday, November 20th at 8 p.m. Central. Join me, the Compel team, and other listeners on a live video call and celebrate what God is doing through the podcast. To RSVP, head over to compelledpodcast.com slash celebrate. And help us choose the bonus content that we'll be releasing between our regular seasons by voting. We want to hear from you. What do you want to hear? A behind-the-scenes discussion with me and Sarah about why we created Compelled? Or a full-length behind-the-scenes interview with one of our existing guests? Or how about a full-blown episode from another podcast similar to Compelled, but one that we've never told you about? It's up to you to decide. So head over to compelledpodcast.com slash vote and let us know. Today's episode was edited by Will Jackson, story editing by Atlee Nugent, sound engineering by Zach Fowler, and our associate producer is my dear wife, Sarah Hastings. Special thanks to Jeff Casper for helping me record this episode. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from Ray Comfort's season finale episode available right now on the Living Waters podcast. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. I'll see you over at the Living Waters podcast in just a few seconds with another compelling story. And I remember one day I had this little dog called Geordie that just loved to go to the beach with me. I'd just say beach and, and he would run around in circles like dogs do. In fact, I love dogs. I think dogs are better than people. People don't wag their tails when they see you coming. Dogs are so faithful. So he ran around in circles crazy. I grabbed my new surfboard, went down our driveway, turned to the left, and he ran ahead of me, tremendously excited. And I screamed out, Geordie, come back. One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th, and there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com events. And I hope to see you there.